Well, it goes without saying that our world is obsessed with love. Uh, you turn on the radio and uh, you'll be struck with the sheer number of love songs. I'm not sure there is a song in Malaysia that is not about love. Or you go to the movies. How many of them are about love? And in our lives, we constantly long uh, for someone to love and for someone to love us in return. Uh, but I think it's true that we're increasingly uh, obsessed with sex as well. Now, I'm from Australia, and it's been quite troubling to see uh, what happens when a country walks away from God. Uh, first, there was the sexual revolution that made it okay to have sex outside of marriage. Uh, in Australia today, many people will consider you abnormal uh, if you haven't had sex because you're waiting for marriage. It's no surprise, therefore, that in Australia, uh, divorce rates have long been on the rise. In my own extended family, more than half of my relatives have been divorced. And so then there is the sheer devastation that is caused to families through such brokenness. Many people live day by day with the pain of broken relationships. Children live with the pain of separated parents. And the next step in many countries, Australia included, is the rise of LGBTI and the push for same-sex marriage. And so people will say, look, love is love. It doesn't matter who loves who, there should be equality. It's argued that it's a human right to uh, marry whoever I want, whether it's the same sex or different sex, despite the fact that it hasn't been practiced in most cultures for thousands of years. Some will go on to say that, that marriage is just an old-fashioned tradition designed for suppressing women, and we should just get rid of it. Sleep with whoever we want, wherever we want, whenever we want. It's all the same. Well, of course, the distorted views of sex and marriage are not absent from Malaysia either. Uh, here in Malaysia too, all too often, women are viewed as, as uh, only as objects for a men's pleasure. And that's the case not only in, uh, with pornography, which is a major issue in the church, but even in the official teaching of some religions. Uh, some of our politicians, you might remember, have even gone so far as to, to, to encourage men to marry women they have raped or other horrendous things. Now, for other Malaysians, marriages are just places of duty only. We, we stay together for our children. We stay together to save face because it would look bad if we separated. Or we stay together just for financial convenience. So many people live in broken marriages where the intimacy and the affection has long passed and has been replaced by coldness and distance. Well, in a world like ours, where, where marriage and sex has just gone so wrong, what should marriage be like? And what should love be like? And, and what is the right and proper expression of our sexual instincts? Is it up to me to decide? Or is it up to society's preference what we do? What does God say? Well, we're reading Song of Songs. The phrase means the greatest of songs. Uh, this book is meant to help us reflect on the nature of love itself. It's written as a collection of love poems because uh, sometimes words can't adequately express emotion and 
beauty. We need poetry. We need song to express these things. And rather than being a free-for-all where I sleep with whoever I want, whenever I want, Song of Solomon portrays for us a very different picture of love, marriage, and sex. You might remember in chapters 1 and 2, we've, we've been uh, urged repeatedly not to awaken love until it so desires. Uh, yes, there's a, a rightness and goodness to pursuing the object of our affection. There's right to crave their love in return. And yet there's a recognition that, that sex belongs within the safe bounds of marriage. And so we must be careful. Well, last week, chapters uh, in chapter 3, uh, 2 and 3, we saw the bride-to-be dreaming about her wedding day and the love-making that will follow it. We see the goodness of her pursuit, uh, of his pursuit of her, the goodness of her longing for him. And once again, the warning, if you can put up the slide, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases and so these love songs that are meant to help us to see the beauty of love and the beauty of, of marriage and, and sex within marriage when it is practiced according to God's design. And everything so far has been, has been leading up to the climax of our passage this morning, chapter 5, verse 1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice, I ate my honeycomb and my honey, I drank my wine with my milk. This is the climax, it's following the pursuit, it's following the wedding day. Here we have the consummation. And we should note here that this is the central verse in the whole book. There's 111 verses before this, there's 111 verses after this, and it is no coincidence because for the Jews, the things at the center was the, well, the thing at the center was the heart, the center, the focus. And so we have right at the center of this grand book, the sexual union of the man and his wife. Love leads to marriage, leads to sex. And again, the author wants us to see how beautiful it is when it's done in God's way and in God's time. Well, before we get there, he wants us to understand that the right context for sex is marriage. Point one, sex is for marriage. Because the love that's described in these chapters is, is not just any love. It's the, it's the exclusive love between a husband and his bride. And verses 6 to 11 of chapter 3 uh, show the bride dreaming about her wedding day. Uh, you notice it mentions King Solomon here, and it might seem strange to have a poem about Solomon's marriage uh, at this point. Of course, it's possible that it is Solomon's marriage, but I think we, uh, we know from elsewhere in the book that the bride is more likely to be a country girl called uh, the Shulamite, uh, and her lover is just a simple shepherd boy. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Solomon's wedding uh, might not have been such a memorable occasion as this anyway since, well, sorry, it would have been a memorable occasion since he's had 700 wives, 300 concubines. It probably would have been familiar. So I think we're not meant to understand this as Solomon's marriage, but her dreaming of her own. If you like, her own special day will be like a royal wedding. Her lover will be her Prince Charming, she will be his princess. And so she says in uh, chapter 6, verse 12, 
Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, we see her distinguish Solomon's marriage from her own. She says there, my vineyard, my very own is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. And so Solomon's separate. Here is her dreaming of her own wedding and perhaps written as a reminder for Solomon of what marriage should be. But what a grand occasion this, this is. Uh, verse 6, we see the, the smell of perfume. Verses 7 and 8, we, we see the escort. Uh, the chariot comes with 60 mighty soldiers. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, we see that the luxury of this carriage, it is uh, made of gold and, and purple and wood from Lebanon. And in verse 11, we see the joy of all the daughters of Israel as they share in the king's joy. Now, uh, last year I attended a, uh, a wedding for some friends in Singapore. The bride's uh, parents actually run the third largest catering company in Singapore. They serve over 200 functions every week. And so you can imagine what the wedding banquet was like. There was, it was truly a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, I tell you. It was amazing. And so also I think we have in these verses then a, a, a grand celebration of marriage. Uh, of course, there's, there's more to a marriage than, than, than all the beauty of the, the food and uh, the beauty of the bride and, the, and the, the, all the food and so on. The reason we celebrate weddings is because we celebrate marriage. The fact that we, that we long for marriage, that we celebrate marriage, it points to the goodness of marriage. After all, God created it. We should celebrate it. And we don't celebrate it as simply as a, an empty institution. It's meant to be a place of passionate, committed love. And we turn to that now in chapter 4.2, the beauty of marital love. Now in chapter 4, as the, the wedding cart arrives and the, the lover beholds his bride, in verse 1, he cannot contain his delight. He says there, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And in verse 1 to 6, he once again admires her beauty from head to toe. Uh, the imagery is a bit strange. Again, Tim warned us a few weeks ago not to compare our spouses to a horse. Well, I thought I'd try out these ones instead. Uh, Told, you know, I just told my wife uh, that her hair was like a flock of goats <laughs> and she was a little bit like a condominium towering into the sky, her neck. <laughs> Turns out Tim's advice was actually good advice. <laughs> but here, the groom is, is so awed by her husband. Sorry, the groom is so awed by her, his bride the groom is so awed by his bride that only poetry can truly express his delight. And so verse 1, he says her eyes are like doves, innocent and pure. Verse 1, her hair is long and black. It is, is full of grace and beauty like, like goats descending down a hill in the distance. Verse 2, her teeth are sparkling white. They are as pure as lamb's wool. They are perfectly aligned 
Verse 3, her lips are red as scarlet. Her her cheeks are beautiful, touched with the colour of pomegranates. Verse 4, her neck is long and it's covered in jewellery. Verse 5, her breasts are beautiful too. And verse 6, he is in total ecstasy and delight. Now, it's no accident here that there are seven qualities mentioned. Seven is the number of perfection. And that is exactly how he feels about it. Look at verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. On this, their wedding day, if she had any flaws, and from chapter 1 we know that she does, he doesn't see them. He's in love. And to him she is perfection. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as they say. And overcome by love, all he wants to do is to be with her for a lifetime. In verse 8, he calls out to her, Come with me. Come with me. He says, calls on her to, to leave the, the, the peaks behind. Leave the lions behind and the leopards. Those are, of course, symbols of, of safety and security. But she can leave them behind now because, she, because he will provide for her. He will protect her. He will keep her safe and secure. And again, isn't this how all weddings should be? Celebrations of love. Full of excitement. Full of a, a love that issues in the desire for a permanent commitment in the bonds of marriage. This is what real love is, isn't it? Uh, Vaughan Roberts, who I was listening to, says, if we really love someone, we will take them down the aisle before we take them to the bedroom. Because true love is committed love. True love is in it for the long term. True love sees a person as beautiful despite their flaws. True love is this kind of, of pure love. A few times here, we mentioned the veil, verse 1. Uh, again, verse 3, the veil. It reminds us how she's, she's kept herself for this day. She's kept herself pure. She's taken care not to awaken love before it's so desired. She, she's taken care not to act on the sexual impulses before the wedding day arrives. And in verses 9 to 12, this, this admiration continues. We're reminded again of of the wedding context. Five times he calls her here, my sister, my bride. Count them with me, verse 9 to 12. You've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice, your lips drink nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. So here's a love that is is so pure, isn't it? So total. Verse 9, it's her eyes. Verse 10, it's her love. Verse 11, it's her kisses. He loves it all. And verse 12 reminds us that she is a virgin. 
Her spring is locked. Her fountain is sealed. She's kept herself for her husband on the wedding day. And now, on the wedding day, her garden full of fruits and spices beckons her husband toward the consummation. Now, I think such love is beautiful. Such love is desirable. But such a wedding is only possible when we refuse to cross those physical boundaries until the wedding day. To many in the modern world, maintaining your purity for the wedding day is a concept simply to be laughed at. But this love is so beautiful, it is so pure, it is so innocent, it is so desirable. And the, the language here of gardens and fruit and streams and water, streams of water, it, it's no accident here. It, it's meant to take us back to the beginning, to take us back to the Garden of Eden, that paradise. We're forced to remember that God's design for love and for marriage. Do you remember there in Genesis 2, God declares it's not good that the man should be alone. And God, and God creates the woman and he brings her to the man. And once again, the, the men breaks out in poetic song as he, as he cries out in delight at this creation. Uh, he says that this is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And we just sense his delight, his happiness. And then comes the description of marriage in the next verse. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So perfect. Pure. Marriage is created by God. He knows how it ought to be. And of course, here also, God creates sex. Also part of his good purpose. Not dirty, not dangerous. Good. The man and his wife were both naked. They were not ashamed. Total intimacy total vulnerability and the consummation of their union. They would be one flesh. Marriage, sex within marriage is a beautiful thing. It is something for us to receive with gratitude. It is something to in, be enjoyed with pleasure. Uh, sex within marriage is to be the glue that holds our marriages together. And because it is the glue that is meant to hold our marriages together, it is to be kept only for our marriages. Any kind of sex outside of those bounds soon becomes very ugly indeed. At last of any form will never be as satisfying as this marital love. It doesn't matter whether it's pornography or it's prostitution or it's sleeping with my girlfriend or boyfriend or, or same-sex marriage or whatever it is. That's why Vaughan Roberts is right. It can never be loving to take someone to bed before you've taken them down the aisle because real love will be committed to their benefit for the long term. Real love will be pure. Real love will be committed. And outside of that context, sex is a fire that causes unmeasurable pain as we are drawn, glued towards another person with whom we cannot remain. 
Well, marriage is beautiful. A man and a woman for life who keep themselves pure for one another and delight in each other in committed, passionate love. I think uh, the reason for this chapter here is that God really wants us to see the beauty of his design so that we are drawn to it. Uh, the, the West show, has give, gives us ample testimony to the results that will come, the consequences when we leave behind God's design. When we leave behind God's design, suddenly love and sex and marriage, it all becomes about me. It's about fulfilling my desires. It's about gaining pleasure for myself. It's about using the other person rather than honouring the other person. And it's all so ugly. It's all so damaging. But this is beautiful. Well, we have love, uh, we have the marriage, we have the marital love. Now we come to the consummation, the wedding night. And we're at point three, the goodness of sex within marriage. Earlier I mentioned the, the refrain in chapters one to three, the next slide, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Uh, it's a warning to wait for the right, right time and the right place to express our sexual instincts. But now in this chapter, with the wedding past, everything changes. Chapter 4, verse 16. She says, awake. Now is the time to awaken love, to, to stir up love, to, to, to bring it to its consummation. And so the, the bride invites her husband, awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, blow up my garden, let its spices flow, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choices fruit. She, she invites her lover to enter her garden, to make it his own, to enjoy the fruit. It's an erotic invitation to the bedroom. And in chapters 5 verse 1, he answers her call. I came to, to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And again, I just want you to notice how the, the consummation here, it's, it's captured with such beauty and purity. So many ways he could have described this. But here he chooses these beautiful metaphors, fruit, spice, honey, wine. It is beautiful and it is other person-centered. It's not lustful. It is genuine care. It's not self-seeking. It is self-giving. Just notice again that the mutuality of all of this. If we look at verse 16. The bride says, it is my garden and then his garden. And verse 1, the groom says, her garden is his garden. Chapter 4, verse 8, he calls to her. And then 4.16, she calls to him. Here is self-giving love as the, as the husband and the wife give themselves to one another. Here they, they invite one another. They, they, they praise one another. And that's important because sex as God has made it is never about me. It's never simply about fulfilling my needs or 
uh, or, or, or experiencing my own pleasure. Of course, it is pleasurable, and that's God's good design. But true love, as God intends it, doesn't seek my own pleasure. It seeks the pleasure of the other. And so the ultimate expression of love, sex, is always to be an act of service, an act of, of, of giving myself to the other for their pleasure, for their enjoyment. And I suspect we need to, to work hard at this in our marriages, to, to, to developing this mutual praise and this mutual invitation. Because the world shouts out continually the opposite. Love, sex, it's about you. And we constantly need to remind ourselves it's not about self-gratification and it's not about self-fulfillment. It's about self-giving. Now the New Testament affirms this very same teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Next slide. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have uh, the for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, of course, these uh, verses can't be used to insist that my spouse give me what I want. That's, that's about being self-seeking, isn't it? Not self-giving. But it is another reminder that sex is about the other. In marriage, my body belongs to my wife or husband, and it's to be given to them freely. And so if you are married, don't hold back your body from your spouse. It's not about how much you like it or how much you enjoy it or how much you're in the mood. It's about how I can serve, how I can give. But notice it's this self-giving love is not meant to be a duty either. So I think, okay, now I've got to do this. It's my duty. The passage is filled with love, delight, perfection. It's a reminder to us that as we do this, we should be doing it with joy and delight, affection. Now again, it's so easy, isn't it, for, to, to, to lose this in our marriages. You know, when the children come along, suddenly they are the focus. Suddenly our parents start calling themselves mama and baba. And all we know how to do is watch TV together because we don't know how to talk anymore. Now, of course, our honeymoon won't last forever. But this kind of, of mutual praise and mutual invitation and mutual self-giving love is not an optional extra only for newlyweds. This is God's design for marriage. And as the couple goes off to consummate their marriage, everyone approves. You see that in chapter 5, verse 1. They all call out, eat, friends, drink, be drunk with love. Now, of course, they're not watching on at this point. <laughs> Perhaps they're setting, sending them off at the wedding banquet. Perhaps this is the, the toast at Yum Sing. But there is this uh, recognition here of how right 
and good it is for the man and his wife to be intoxicated with pleasure for one another. Marriage is good. Sex within marriage is good and it is right for them to approve of it. Because marriage is never simply a private matter. It's a public institution. That's why when we get married, we have to go down to the JPN or post our bands of marriage in the church. That's why a wedding ceremony must have witnesses. That's why all of the friends and family must come and support the marriage. Marriage is public. It is to be celebrated as such. And so because marriage is good and sex is good, we encourage marriage. We celebrate sex within marriage. And again, the New Testament affirms this. Hebrews chapter 13. Let the marriage... Let marriage be held in honour among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And ultimately we must protect the, the beauty of marriage and the commitment of marriage and the exclusivity of marriage because it points forward to a greater marriage. And we're at point four, the ultimate marital Union. Of course, throughout the Bible, marriage and, and the sexual union is used as a, as a deep, intimate picture of the relationship of God with his people. God is the God of steadfast love, who, who, who passionately loves his people with self-giving love, who will bind himself to them in marriage. It's very interesting, actually, that in the, in the Jewish tradition that the Song of Solomon is read during Passover every year. Because there at Passover, we see the steadfast love of God as he, as he saves his people out of Egypt and they, they enter into a covenant relationship with him at Sinai. They promise, God promises to, to love them and to be faithful to them and to bless his people and they promise to be loyal in return. It's a, it's a marriage commitment. And of course, Israel's marriage is tainted. Israel commits spiritual idolatry even on the wedding night as they build the golden calf. But as imperfect as, as Israel's relationship with God was, it was to be a picture of that ultimate marriage between God and his people. And we saw in Ephesians 5 in that New Testament reading, as Paul quotes from Genesis 2, he applies it to the marriage of Christ and the church. Let's look at that together. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And so this, this beautiful, intimate, exclusive, committed union between the man and the woman on the wedding night here in Song of Solomon. It's meant to point us forward in the most amazing of ways to the most beautiful, intimate, exclusive, committed union of all between Christ and his people. Even now, as Christians, we are, we are united to Jesus in the most intimate of personal Relationships, not in a sexual way, but we are members of his body. We are united to him. He lives in us. We live in him. 
He loves us passionately and faithfully. He gives his life for us and he calls on us to, to respond to him in the same way with love and faithfulness and commitment and, and delight. And so we see sex is good, but it's not the greatest good. The ultimate good is the union of God with his people in Christ. The union that we experience in part now and will experience most perfectly when he re returns and we live with him in this perfectly restored relationship forever and ever. And it is therefore because Marriage and sex are a picture of God's relationship with us all. That, that, that's why marriage must be between a man and a woman, because the church and Christ are not the same thing. And, and that's why marriage must be a, a lifelong union, because God is utterly committed to his people forever. And that's why marriage must be loving, because Christ is pa passionately loves his people and goes to the cross for them. And that's why it must be exclusive, because Christ deserves our, our total and undivided worship. And, and that's why marriage must be self-giving and other person-centered, because Christ gives his life for the church. And I think that's a, a great comfort and a great hope for every one of us here this morning. Especially if we long for this kind of love, but we don't have it. Now, I'm aware this morning of just how painful this series may be for some of us here this morning. Some of us are divorced, some of us are widowed, some of us are desperately lonely, either because we are single or because the affection of our marriage has long passed. And we crave this. And it almost seems painful to hold it out in front of us. But as uh, difficult as this series may be, as it digs up all of those wounds, let me encourage you not to avoid this book. Because in these songs are actually also the greatest comfort that you could ever know. This is saying that if you are a Christian, you can and will have the perfect marriage one day. A royal marriage. And if you are a Christian, you can and you will experience this intimate, committed, faithful love described here. Because Christ will give us that. And perhaps we're all too aware this morning of our failures or our faithlessness in our marriages or our sexual life. And perhaps in our past we have gone to bed with our boyfriend or girlfriend. Or we have had an affair. Or we are addicted to pornography. Or perhaps we've been abused. And marriage and sex no longer seems as beautiful as it is described here. But once again, I want you to know that no matter what sin or shame or, or ugliness lies in our past, we know 
Jesus, in his love, went to the cross for us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so the message of the Gospel is that Jesus' death can wash away every sin. His blood can take away every shame. We can be holy, pure. We can be righteous and right with God. It is glorious news. And so if we will leave our our sexual failures and our disappointments and our aching hearts at the foot of the cross, and then soak in again the gospel, God's love in this perfect marriage, it will be our ultimate comfort and consolation. And as those who have been saved by Jesus for that perfect heavenly marriage, of course this song ought to reshape the way we think about love and marriage and sex. Sex is for marriage. Marital love is beautiful. And sex within marriage is good. And so if you are here today and you're in a difficult marriage, can I encourage you, seek to love your spouse. Remember how it all began. And if sex is no longer part of your relationship, then can I say work at it? It's important. And don't go looking for that intimacy elsewhere. And if you're single, but you desire to be married, then please take God's advice. Don't awaken love before it so desires. And if pornography is the problem for you, tell someone. If you're tempted to sleep with the boyfriend or girlfriend, stop. Don't give in. Keep yourself pure for your future spouse. Well, our world is confused about sex and marriage, but we are those who honour marriage. We are those who keep the wedding bed pure. We are those who celebrate God's good design and live in the light of it. And we are those who rejoice in the cross in that perfect marriage relationship as Jesus gives his life and that glorious marriage to come when we will be united to him forever. It is altogether beautiful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your design for love and marriage and sex is so beautiful. And Father, we thank you for reminding us again this morning of what our marriages should be like. 
Lord, we're aware this morning that each, each one of us are, are sexual sinners in our own ways. And uh, we have failed in various ways to live up to this grand design. And so we thank you that even though we were sin, even when we were sinners, that you sent Christ to die for us so that we can now be united with him in a perfect union. Father, we pray that his love would be our ultimate consolation no matter what we've been through. And we pray that in the light of his love that you would help us to live in real love towards um, our spouses or our future spouses. Help us to be faithful, committed and self-giving just as you have been towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.